It's watering time, everybody! It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you can saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we are going to talk about the search for significance. But before we do, we have a word from our awesome sponsors. Are you looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area? Then if so, I recommend calling Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and love for people. Kathy is trustworthy and truly cares about her clients. I know, and I can say this because I am one of them. Kathy is my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but is regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her that Travis sent you. I'm not sure how many of you like to go on YouTube and just watch some of the different videos that are on there. I think we do that too much. But every once in a while, I like to go to America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, and I love to watch these inspirational stories. I mean, sometimes it's not even about the talent the person has, but it's about the story of what they've overcome and what they've gone through and really the uniqueness of how they were able to be really transformed. I I, I remember hearing the story of Susan Boyle, who was 47 years old, uh, this British woman who goes on Britain's Got Talent, and she wasn't the normal contestant. She was older, a little socially awkward. She had pepper gray hair. She didn't seem to fit the persona of what someone would think of when they're thinking of a, a star, if you will. And when they when she was interviewed, they asked her what she wanted to do or be, and she said to be a professional singer. And everyone laughed in the audience because she did not look what look like what a professional singer should look like in most people's minds. And then they they asked her why she'd never tried this before or why she never became a professional singer, and she said simply, I've never been given the chance. Then she was asked what she was going to sing, and she said, I, I dreamed a dream from Les Miserables. And of course, the camera, they do a great job on the show, is as the music starts and the introduction starts, everyone's sitting there silent, looking around, and and they start kind of commenting toward one another, is she going to be able to sing? And then you watch the facial expressions of the people as she starts to sing, and they're growing appreciation and admiration of this woman that is really being transformed in their eyes as she sings. And her life goes on a totally different trajectory and after or as a result of being on this show because the world finally got to see and recognize who she is. I think many of us are are very similar. We want to be recognized for who we are and the uniqueness for who we are and and just the valued nature of the inner person for who we are. I mean, who are you? You are made in the image of God. God has uniquely gifted you. And the world may not see it, but God does. And ultimately, we live before an audience of one. And it's not about getting all of the YouTube hits or getting followers on Instagram or Facebook or any of those things. I mean, those are great things, okay? But ultimately, it's about God noticing who we are and God knowing who we are and us being okay with that. Because the reality is that it's it's God's approval that really counts because heaven and earth is going to pass away. Okay, this world is passing away with all of its desires, but it's ultimately only what God says about you that matters. And God has uniquely gifted every single one of us in a pretty phenomenal way. In James chapter 1 verse 17, we read that every good gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So it's not about America's got talent or Britain's got talent or the Philippines got talent or Malaysia's got talent or Singapore's got talent or India or Africa or whatever country you want to put in there with got talent. It's about the church, God's church, God's people have talent. God has created his people 
to bring his name glory. He didn't just create us to drink coffee and have fellowship and, and go shopping and consume things and watch videos. No, he's created us for a purpose. You have a purpose. Uh, I don't know if you remember the book or not. It came out several years ago by Pastor Rick Warren, who's in California, but he, he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it skyrocketed because in our postmodern world where we are told we have no purpose, he was saying, no, that God has uniquely shaped and fashioned you and he has a purpose for you. So let me say this, wherever you are, Wherever you are listening right now, and we have listeners all over the world, we have 30% of our listening audience is in India, and almost, I think, 7% of our listening audience is in Bangladesh. I mean, we have listeners all over the world, and I want to say this to you, that you have a purpose and that you are valuable to God. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7 God is speaking to his people Israel, but I think there's something there for us. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's what God created us for. It's for his glory. We're created to be here a short time and then we die. I know that sounds a little bit depressing, but it's true. The older that I get, the faster life gets. I feel like when I'm a younger guy, I don't know if you've ever ridden a roller coaster, but it takes you up so slowly and it seems like, okay, life is getting started, life is getting started, life is getting started. And then suddenly you're going down the other side and it's like, slow down, <laughs> slow the world down. I wanna get off right now. I wanna get off of this, this ride, but we can't. Life continues to go on. And the older that I get, the faster life seems to get. And, and I have seen generations come and generations go and I'm amazed at the brevity of life. God has created us though for a purpose. And it's, it's, it's up to us to see and recognize that God has created us for that purpose. The problem is, is that we're pursuing that purpose and identity in so many other things rather than seeing the identity that God has for us in and through Christ. Peter, the apostle, understood that life was short. He understood it was brief. And he understood what we had to do in the time we have before we step into eternity. And that's either happens when Jesus comes again or when we die. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, we read this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to break this down. Peter understood that our true search for significance is found when we have the right motivation. Motivation is everything. We're coming to the end of a year when we get, begin to ramp up for a new year and people make all kinds of resolutions. I want to lose weight. I want to get in shape. I want to get a better job. I want to be better financially. And a lot of the times though, that those motivations dissipate very, very quickly. And because that, that same motivation to help us spark that resolution that we made doesn't hold water. It doesn't last very long. But we need to really have a different kind of motivation. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the videos on like the Discovery Channel where you see a cheetah chasing a gazelle. And, and I love these videos um, and I'm mesmerized by them because the gazelle is a pretty fast creature, but the cheetah is the fastest mammal on the planet. It can go from zero to 47 miles per hour in like four leaps. That's crazy. What amazes me, though, is that the gazelle can get away. It goes crazy. It jumps back and forth. It's moving faster and faster. And while it cannot outrun the cheetah, it can go longer to get away. And I think there are two reasons for this. The cheetah can only go in short bursts. Uh, he loses energy quickly and motivation. I mean, yes, he's hungry, but he's only looking for a meal. The cheetah keeps going and goes quick and a little bit nuts because he's running for his life. So there's a, there's, it's a question of motivation, right? The cheetah's really quick, but doesn't get the gazelle often because the gazelle is like, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> I gotta run. 
and his motivation is different. And for us, when we're understanding, when we look at eternity, that changes our motivation for things. That's why Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. He's referring here to the second coming of Christ, the time when this earth will pass away. And if we look back a couple of verses to verses 4 and 5 in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ooh, that, that's sobering to me. It's like, ooh, I, I get shivers and shake when I read that because it, it says in this passage that we're looking at today, it gives hope and purpose in the midst of suffering. And Peter's reminding them that the wicked of, of this world, those who have rejected Christ, not those who just believe in this generic moral therapeutic deity, but the real God of the Bible, who are seeking to follow him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and want to obey him over all things, he's reminding them that the wicked will be judged and the righteous, those who have truly trusted in Christ, not just by their, their verbiage, but by their lives, and they reveal that by their lives, will be rewarded. And now we have to remember that Peter is the human author by the Spirit of God. He's being carried along by the Spirit of God to write this. And he's writing under the reign of the Emperor Nero, who was one crazy dude. This guy ruled from AD 54 to AD 68. And it's almost certain that when Peter wrote this letter, he wrote it from Rome. And it was probably right before Nero or what was known as the Neronian perse persecution. Nero was a nut job de jour. And so this date that he's doing this is probably A.D. 62 to 63, when Nero went full bore against the church. I mean, massive persecution, killing people, blaming them for all these kinds of things. I mean, people are running around trying to get away, fearful for their lives. And here we are told, as Peter says, that, that the Christians are to be full of hope, for they will certainly enjoy this end-time salvation since they're all already are enjoying the saving promises of God here and now through the death and resurrection of Christ. See, this he's saying this is your proper motivation. Jesus is coming again, and this world is not going to continue on forever. And what you're going through now, there's a reason for it. And what you see going on around you, and the wicked are going and seemingly going full bore, no problems, seemingly having a, their best life now. But Everything is going to be brought to an account. And that's something I don't think we talk about anymore. We don't talk about God's judgment. We, we talk about God's love. And yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. I don't know why we don't think that God's not going to judge. God is going to judge. And that should freak us all out, at least a little bit. And, and this world isn't going to continue on forever. Jesus is coming back and it's going to be, I mean, talk about the news story. I, I'm a huge basketball fan, okay? And I, I think Michael Jordan is the greatest player to ever play the game. In fact, I was in Uganda, and I have a friend of mine who uh, breeds goats and gives them to poorer families or lower-income families in order to give them meat and food or giving a means of income. They can take care of the goat. They can give milk to other people and sell it. And uh, I bought a goat to give to a family, and he said, he asked me what I wanted to name the goat, and I said, Michael Jordan. <laughs> Kid you not. I just needed him to know that Michael Jordan is the goat. And Michael... And you might disagree with me, but if we go back over Michael's bio, and I remember when Michael Jordan retired after he won his third NBA championship in 1993, he came back, if you remember, in 1995 with two words, I'm back. And it was the news story. Now, Jesus is coming back, and he's not going to just announce it with two words, uh, with a fax. I mean, it's going to be, he's going to show up, and this whole world's going to stop, and the clouds are going to be rolled back as a scroll. And when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a sight to behold, and it's going to, I mean, life as we know it is going to change everywhere and anything. It's not going to be just carried on by some news agencies. I mean, it is the end of time. As we know it, Jesus is coming back. And, and while others people, people are saying now, well, the whole world's going on. Look at the globalization. We got all of these different things. And there's so much going on right now. How is he going to know it all? Well, he's God, okay? He's going to know it all. 
And and Peter reminds us in his second letter, because some people are like, time is going on. How could you even think that? Look at all the advances we have. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So if God were to experience time as we do, I mean, it's been two days while he's been it's been 2,000 years to us, okay, if we were to look at that one-to-one ratio. Jesus is going to come again, and we need to be aware of that fact because time time to God is not like time to us. I mean, we experience it, and it seems like a long time to God, no big deal. C.T. Studd, this great British missionary, he said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We need to be aware that our life matters to God. And what we do to God is ultimate, not do to God, excuse me, but what we do for God is what matters. I mean, first of all, it's believing in him. We can't work our way to God. We cannot save ourselves. Okay. We are saved by grace through faith, but it's what we do for God as a response to his salvation. And, and that's, what's going to be remembered. And we'll, we will be rewarded according to what we've done with what God has given unto us. There's a, there's this trend right now that I see going on among Christians today to remove any motivation uh, of fear or reward to serve God. But you know, the Bible talks about reward. And while that thinking is popular, it's completely antithetical to the Bible. The Bible talks a great deal about reward. Now try this on Matthew 5 through 6. Go to that Sermon on the Mount. Read about it. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. For you will have. For you will have. For this will be yours. And you can see that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, or, or Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 36, or 1 Corinthians 3, 14, or 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 17, or Hebrews 11, 26, 2 John 1, 8, Revelation 11, 18. And, and he also talks about judgment. Matthew chapter 11, verse 22 and 24, 12, 36, Romans 2, 5, 2 Peter 3, 7, 1 John 4, 17, and Jude 1, 6. I give you those verses. If you want to stop and take some time to look those up and see that there is reward as a motivation and judgment. And we, we have to understand that and not just go on and say, oh, we, you know, I don't do this for the reward. We do things for the reward. And God promises us reward as motivation. Both reward and judgment are to be motivations for us to be effective stewards of the time that we have and the resources that he has entrusted to our care. So our true search for significance is found when we have the right mindset. Look at verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's giving a command here. We're, we are stewards, and as stewards are called to be self-controlled. Now, this, this Greek word for self or sober-minded means to be of sound mind. That means to be like temperate, okay? To be of sound mind, to exercise self-control, to curb one's passions. All right, that's the opposite of what our world says. If it feels good, do it. He's saying no. This is about habitual self-government, which is it's constant rain on all the passions and desires. Not only is sanity returned to the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, where this same word is used, but self-control. So he's sober-minded and he becomes self-controlled. This, this wild, crazy dude becomes the docile, quiet, self-possessed individual whom the people viewed with a critical eye. They didn't trust him. And, and today, we don't talk about self-control or being sober-minded. Here we are to be self-controlled. And Plato, the great Greek philosopher, defined self-control as the mastery of pleasure and desire. Not ruled over it. We rule over it. It's like mastering walking. When you have a, if you have a, if you're a parent and you have a kid, and your your child is a little baby and you're watching them crawl and then watch them walk, and you are so amazed when they take that first step, and everybody applauds and cheers, and it's awesome. And you master it pretty quick though. I mean, it's that first step, but we know after that, we don't applaud them when they're 20 years old and they take a step unless there's something else that, that is not working correctly. And the same when they go to the bathroom by themselves and they learn how to be potty trained. We applaud when they use that because they're mastering that. They understand how to, to, 
to master their bodily functions and balance, and those things are important. But as we grow, we have to learn to master those desires that we have within us and not let them rule and reign over us. Yes, we all have desires and they have their proper place, but they can't be everywhere and they can't rule every single part of our lives. We have the ability to say no to our pleasures and our desires, and especially when they go outside of the bounds, and that's when it becomes sin. And we can say no because when you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God within you. When you become a believer in Jesus, God places his Spirit in you to help you grow and become like Jesus and live the life that he desires you to live. And so we learn how to say no to sin and yes to God. And since we are in these last days, and we are in the last days, but the last days isn't just talking about the 21st century. It's talking about the time when the Spirit of God ascend, descended on the church at, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. That's the beginning of the end times. And we are in these last days. And because we are in the, these last days, we have to know how to control ourselves. Sin abounds. It's everywhere. It is at our fingertips. We can scroll and find it in seconds, nanoseconds. And, and other generations had to hunt for sin all the time. We can get it anytime we want. Sin abounds. It hides all around us. It disguises itself, though, as innocent pleasures that our friends and family might get into. And, and we might see laughed at on television and celebrated and, and just really admired. And, and the reality is it's still sin in the sight of God. And we have to learn to control our appetites. We have to learn to say no to sin. And we can because we have the ability to do so because we have the Spirit of God within us. You don't have to sin. You don't have to continue giving into that same old sin as you have been before. John Piper, pastor and theologian, warns that the end is, in, is near indeed. If anyone dallies with sin in the world thinking, I have lots of time, he plays the fool. The judge is at the door, and the time remaining should be spent in earnest prayer that we not be made drunk and hard by the cares and pleasures of this world. What he's saying there is that we are also called to be sober-minded. So we have self-controlled, we, we are to be self-controlled, say no to sin, and sober-minded. Now, to be sober, to be temperate. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a person that's drunk. I, I went to a restaurant. I was trying to uh, go out with these people from my gym, and it, it has a, it's a restaurant, and it has a bar, and, and we were watching a football game together, and the game was over, and one of the men that came had been drinking for some time. And as we're getting ready to leave, I'm watching him, and I thought he was joking, but he's staggering. He's running into tables. He's dropping his keys. I realized this guy's going to kill somebody. So I take his keys away and I drive him home in his car and then I have someone come and pick me up. But watching someone drunk is not a fun thing. I mean, we, we mock it on movies or we laugh at it when we see people doing it. But the person is not in control of their senses. And when he's talking about being sober-minded, it means to be free from controlling factors or influencers. We realize that we're living life ultimately before an audience of one. We are responsible for our lives before God, and we don't want anything that's controlling us except the Spirit of God. Because what we do in this life does really matter. I was driving along the other day and I saw a sign on the side of the road. It just said, what you do matters or everything you do matters. So true. It does. It reminds me of the moody movie Gladiator starring Russell Crowe. And he says, what we do in life echoes in eternity or what we do echoes in eternity. So true, but not in the ways that we often think. And, and I think we just kind of go through life laughing. And I think of Heath Ledger playing the Joker in The Dark Knight when he says, why so serious? I mean, we do need to take life a little bit serious. I mean, there are times when we not need to take ourselves so seriously, but we do need to take life serious. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all the time just anxious over everything coming down our way. No, because we are to rest. We are to find peace and proper perspective and rest in God. And we can laugh and have fun and enjoy this world. 
But it does mean recognizing that our lives have an ultimate end point and that we are responsible to God for them because our life is important. I like how uh, one scholar that I found out, I can't remember the name of the scholar, but he wrote this, take things seriously, being aware of their real importance and being ever mindful of their consequences in time and in eternity. The sober saint approaches life not as a jest, but as a serious matter for which he is answerable or she is answerable to God. Let us not become intoxicated by Satan's three vintage wines, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life, according to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I like to call them the three-headed monster. This author goes on and says, In the New Testament, the Greek word nepho is used only figuratively, meaning to be free from every form of mental and spiritual intoxication. The idea then is to be calm and collected in spirit, circumspect, meaning aware of oneself, self-controlled, well-balanced, clear-headed, be self-possessed. For believers, a more accurate description would be spirit-possessed under all circumstances. It speaks of exercising self-restraint, which is enabled by the spirit, and being free from excess, from evil passion, from rashness, etc., an expectant attitude toward Christ's return but then involves a serious, balanced mind and an alert, awake prayer life. The test of our commitment to the doctrine of Christ's return is not our ability to draw charts or discern signs, but our thinking and praying. If our thinking and praying are right, our living should be right. Another scholar writes that nepho denotes a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. It is an attitude of self-discipline to training oneself that avoids the extremes of the reckless irresponsibility of self-indulgence on the one hand and of religious ecstasy on the other. It inculcates a calm, steady state of mind that evaluates things correctly so that it is not thrown off balance by new and fascinating ideas. Such level-headedness is a constant Christian need. We are called to be self-controlled and have sober judgment, straight up. Why? Why? Because for the sake of our prayers, we're going to come back to that in a minute. And I want us to stop and look for verse 10 really quick. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each person who is a believer in Jesus Christ has received a gift. And there are different kinds of gifts. There are natural gifts that we have and spiritual gifts. And both of them are to be used for the glory of God, that everything that we have is to, to act as a mirror to reflect back to God what he means to us. That's the imagery that John Piper creates and is given to me, and I think that's the best description. We see ourselves as mirrors using all of our gifts and talents to point other people back to who God is. There are spiritual gifts according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, I mean, there has a whole list that's there. And as we read before, James says that every gift we have is from God. And did you know, though, that every person has certain natural gifts and every person has at least one spiritual gift, which means that God has given us certain ministries or ways that we are to serve him with these gifts. Each of us has a spiritual gift and we need to use it to serve other people. It's not just about you. It's not just about you. God has given you this gift so that you might help other people and serve other people. And when you do that, it's incredible. It's an incredible thing happens. We are to serve other people for the common good. That's why we need to be in community, by the way, is we can't be away from one another. We were created to be in community and we need to be with other people. And part of that means serving them, that we're to serve one another. And it means that we seek to benefit them with a gift that God has given us and God has placed in our hearts and in our lives. And we're to use that to serve other people so that they might see and know God in a greater way. And that means we are called to be in some kind of ministry, a way of serving God and making his name known. It's not just for the Christian who's who. It's not for the spiritual elite. It's not for those who go to Bible college or seminary. It's for every single one without exception. It's not for the super Christians, but for every single Christian. And that means you that are listening right now. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know how you've been gifted? And what is your excuse? I remember one time I heard David Ring. David Ring has cerebral palsy. 
And he was speaking at Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois, at their Founders Week. And he he walked up to the microphone and he said in a voice, because his speech had been stilted somewhat because of his cerebral palsy, and he said, I have cerebral palsy. What's your excuse? And I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just trying to, to communicate how he said this. And it was so striking to everyone in the congregation because every one of us looked at one another and went, Here's a man who has something that he was born with that could severely restrict him for his entire life, but it hasn't. He is proclaiming the gospel all over the world. God has blessed him and his message was so convicting. And I think his life is so convicting that God uses broken people and all of the excuses that we have are not really valued. I mean, that they're insufficient. God uses broken people. He makes straight lines with crooked sticks. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a paraplegic, or Bethany Hamilton, who had her arm bit off by a shark when she was 13 years old. Every single one of them has an issue or thing that they could point to and use as an excuse to keep them from ministering and serving God, but it's not prevented them from having ministries. In fact, it is open wide the doors. All of us have ministries, whether you're the stay-at-home parent or you're working in the corporate world or whether you're in a factory by yourself all day. I, I don't care what your job is. You have an opportunity to glorify God in the unique way that he has gifted and fashioned you. And part of that means praying. Yes, we are to serve one another, but we are to pray. And we're to pray with passion. Remember, we're to be self-controlled and exercise sober-mindedness. Why? For the sake of our prayers. Did that not freak you out or surprise you? It kind of came out of nowhere. Wait, wait, what? I'm, I'm supposed to do this for the sake of my prayers? We're to pray with passion. God desires that we pray. He wants to communicate with us. And he doesn't want anything to hinder or impede our prayers. If we were to turn back a chapter earlier, we would read Peter's words about the husband and wife relationship and how that can affect our prayer life. He wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and this, this is a very fascinating passage. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Interesting. Peter cared a great deal about prayer. Because Jesus cared a great deal about prayer. And remember when Jesus showed anger? He drove the money changers out of the temple because the temple was to be a place for prayer of all nations. God desires that we pray and to do so in faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We must pray in faith, and our faith should be a faith of prayer. As the great pastor from the American Civil War era, E.M. Bounds, wrote, When faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. So true, it needs oxygen. I mean, that's it. Like, prayer is basically our spiritual oxygen. <laughs> he also said that prayer projects faith on God and God on the world. Only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. I love how Tim Keller put it. Prayer is rebellion against the world's status quo. I love that quote. I love it. I love it because it's true. The world wants to conform us to its image, and prayer is rebelling against what the world says life should be for you and for me. It's rebelling because it's bringing God in and asking God to change it, because only ultimately he can. <laughs> what moves you to pray? Well, I mean, do you believe that God hears your prayers, that God cares? I love that Nicole Nordman song. She says, God be small enough to hear my prayers. See, sometimes we think so God is, is so big and above us, as if he's on the the top of a, a tall skyscraper, and we're on the bottom yelling, and we know that we can't be heard. But that's not true. God is intimately near you right now. He hears your prayers, and he longs for you to pray. The question I think for many of us is, what are we letting 
get in the way of our prayers. Busyness, phones, distraction, could be anything. Andrew Murray, he's another guy who wrote a lot on prayer in the 19th century. He said that some people pray just to pray, and some people pray to know God. That's convicting. Some people pray just to pray to know God. Prayer is rough. I, I find it, with me, it's not, it's not a love-hate relationship. I mean, I love to pray, but it's hard. It's work. Oswald Chambers, the Scottish devotional writer, uh, he went to, to be with Jesus in 1917. I think he was around the age of 43. There's the book, My Utmost for Us Highest, that is uh, was composed or put together by his wife based on talks that he had given. And he said, sometimes we hear pray for the work. But prayer is the work. And it's true. It's a work, but it's also a conversation. It's getting to know God, getting to know the heart of God. And in many ways, it's also getting to know ourselves because we find out what our motivations are. It takes discipline to steal ourselves, meaning to, to pull away, to get away, and then to still ourselves, to be quiet and to listen. And that's not always a fun thing. I don't think many of us like to be alone with our thoughts. <laughs> Samuel Chadwick, he was a British pastor that bridged the 19th and 20th century, said this about prayer. That's why I laughed. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. That's convicting. I think we have a lot of hype in our world today, Facebook, marketing, YouTube, all these different things going on. And I, I've wondered, how much are we praying? I'm not saying those other things aren't great tools. They are. They can reach the world. They're wonderful. But life doesn't, lives aren't really transformed, and God doesn't really come in to bear an act until we start to pray. There's, there's something that happens. It's not, it, it's not always gorgeous. It's not always beautiful. It's not always the way we expect, but God answers and works in ways, as it's been said, he works in mysterious ways. And we are to pray. And we're to pray with passion, fired up. I mean, it doesn't mean shouting. I mean, what's passion look like to you? What are you passionate about? And can you take that same passion and apply that to prayer? And as we do pray with passion, we also are to love without limits because without love, we can do absolutely nada, nothing. Look at verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covering a multitude of sins is not a new concept. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Or James chapter 5, verse 20, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Love hard. That's one of the reasons why I married my wife, because I saw how hard she loved people. I mean, when she loved people, she loved the broken, the beaten, those who hurt her, she still loved them. And I was so amazed at the depth of her love, and I wanted that. She loves hard. Love has a way of covering things over, not in the sense that we're hiding things that need to be repented of or excusing serious things that need to be dealt with. And that's not what I'm talking about. It means that the things that may have hurt us and left a small hole in our hearts or, or, or tear in our hearts, that we'll fill in the cracks with love. Like a crack in a drywall, we fill it in with some putty. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors, the British pastor of the 19th century, he said, it covers them sometimes by not seeing them, talking about love. For where there is much love, we are blind to many faults, which otherwise we might see. We do not exercise the sharpness of criticism, which malice would be sure to exercise, Besides that, when love applies herself to prayer, and when, in addition to prayer, she kindly gives admonition to a beloved friend, it often happens that true Christian love does not does really prevent a multitude of sins. The apostle does not mean that by loving another person, I shall cover my own sin, nor does he mean that the exercise of charity and the common accept, acceptation of that word can cover my sin. But if I have much love to others... 
I may be the instrument and the hand of God for covering many of their sins in one or other of the senses I have mentioned. Where love is, people overlook the small stuff and even some of the big stuff. But where love is lacking, every word is analyzed, every word is viewed with suspicion, and every action is misunderstood, and and Satan has a heyday. (laughs) Instead, we have to love hard. I think the question that I have for myself, and maybe you have for yourself, is this. Do we love hard? Do we love others without limits, or do we have conditions for all the love that we give? I don't know. It's hard. Are you holding others up for the small faults against them or things that they've done in the past that have hurt you? Or are you willing to overlook some of the small sins done against you? And are you, are we loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones that have different personalities and rough and say things that can hurt or offend us? Or are we some of those people that take the smallest bit of slight and we hold it against them in a grudge? Nah, that's not how we're supposed to be. We're to love hard. Jesus commanded us to love one another. I'm so glad that God doesn't treat us that way. C.S. Lewis once said, We forgive the unforgivable in other people's people because God has forgiven the unforgivable in us. So true. That's not all, though. While we are to pray with passion and love without limits, we also are to give with gladness. And we, uh, we are in the season right now where people are thinking of giving. And if we look at verse 9 here for a moment, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Showing hospitality, it literally means love of strangers. We're to do so without complaining. I, I, I speak to the personal nature of this in my own life. In the financial crisis of 2008, I had finished school and through a variety of circumstances found ourselves without a place to live. We were homeless, not in the sense of being out on the street, but having to live in the homes of friends and family, staying in their basements, living on their couches, not having a home of our own, having a very hard time finding a job. It was a very tough time. And we had some Christian friends, wonderful, good friends who let us stay in their home for months. And we, uh, I was invited to speak at this small, pretty dying Baptist church. And when I got done, a couple who had attended because they were friends of our friends who they, they neither one of these families attended this church regularly, but came to support me as I was preaching. And this one couple, I just met them that day, came up to us and said, we believe that God has you to stay in our home for the next couple of weeks. And I was surprised, and it felt a little awkward because I didn't know who they were, and this seemed like a very strange thing to say after I got done. And I said, well, we're okay where we're at with our other friends. And we stayed there for a few more weeks, and I came back to preach again. But this time, things had gotten rough. I mean, when you're staying at a, at a friend's home, you can have tempers flare and step on one another's toes, and, and there wasn't a place to retreat to, and your nerves become frayed. Even the best of friends and family have this happen. And I wanted to give them a break. They were so kind to open up their home to us that this other family came forward and said, we'd like you to stay in our home, and we believe that God has you to stay in our home for the next couple of weeks. This time, I I said, thank you for your opportunity, for, for your offering up your home and and we will do that this time and we expected that we'd be staying in their basement and so they they uh, we arrived at their house and they grabbed our luggage and they walked upstairs had a two-story home and we walked down the hallway and wondering where they're taking us and they take us back to their master bedroom it was a beautiful bedroom and they put our our suitcases down and I thought we were going to the basement and I was surprised that we were standing in the master bedroom and I said well what are we doing here And they said, this is where you're going to stay. And I said, well, where are you staying? They said, well, we're going to stay in our children's room. And I was so humbled. And I felt so loved and so honored and so unworthy at that moment in time. Because I didn't have a job. I had been preaching and looking for positions and and hadn't found anything. And and I felt kind of worthless and and, and that that I, I felt less than. And here this couple was honoring us by putting us up in their home and us as a husband and wife in their bedroom and our kids in their uh, in, in one of the other rooms and, and they were sleeping in their kids' rooms. 
it was an incredible thing. And they were showing us hospitality. And I've seen how big this is in so many other cultures around the world. I was speaking with some Russian friends who were children during the time when uh, communism was still standing and the Soviet Union was still there. And they talked about how their families, who were believers in Jesus and had to remain secret, were entertaining missionaries and pastors all the time that they didn't even know, that they would come into this community and quickly found out that they were Christians and they would stay in their homes. The early church did this all the time because they didn't know if there were people that they could trust. So they would entertain evangelists and pastors and other people. And we need to rediscover hospitality again. And that means opening up our homes, paying attention to those who are in need, and willing to do so. And it's a risk. It is a risk for our families, for our children, for ourselves. But it's something that God calls us to. Remember, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. God is always calling us to take risks. And part of that means extending hospitality. Now, let's get back to to our text. I, I, I want us to look at our remaining two verses in this passage that I read for us today, found in verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. As I said earlier, each of us is given a spiritual gift for the common good. But what are we to do with that gift that we have? And that means to serve with sacrifice. (laughs) Serve with sacrifice. We don't sacrifice very well all the time. Although I think if you're a true believer, there's a part of you that wants to do that because you know that's what God's calling you to do. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, we read that there are some who speak and some who serve. Peter divides these groups into speaking and serving gifts. Those who speak must not present their own ideas. Instead, we have to preach the text as an oracle of God, that it comes from God. Not our own ideas, not what's going on politically, not what other people think it means. What did the author intend it to mean? That's what we're to do. That's what God has called us to do, to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God and to place ourselves under that. That's why I say that there is no one that can be completely objective when it comes to Scripture. We are all subjective. Why? Because the Bible indicts each one of us, and we're under its condemnation. And we have to find hope and forgiveness and truth through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And He tells us and calls us to serve with sacrifice, whether it's speaking or or serving behind the scenes or in some other capacity. We are to serve, not depending on our own strength, but on what God has and what God has said, so that God alone may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Are we serving? Are we loving? And are we giving? If you want to feel significant, then give yourself away in service to the Lord. Significance doesn't come by how much we achieve or how much we give, as we read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We are given the glories of heaven by Jesus making himself poor. And by following his example, we also might become poor so that others might have the glories and riches of heaven. We sacrifice ourselves for others so that they too may be saved and experience the joy of knowing God. So here's here's where we're going to put a bow on this thing. Give yourself away and gain the glories of heaven. The missionary, Jim Elliott, who died in 1948 as he was killed by the very people he was trying to reach, the Alka Indians in Ecuador, he said this, He who is no fool, or he is no fool, who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That is one of the most prolific quotes I've ever heard in my life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So we give what we cannot keep in order to gain heaven, but yet we give our lives knowing that other people might be saved because of it. 
we are to let others see Jesus and how we serve others. We all talk about how to share the gospel. Part of that is by our lives. It's become cliche, but it's true. We're the only Bibles that some people will ever read. And what do they learn about God by looking at our lives? Can others see Jesus in you? How to be significant means letting the life of Jesus show in you and through you so that others might see it. We're not to hinder that. Before I leave today, I know that there are some listening in some closed countries to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how you're listening, but I know that you are. I want to say this to you. Are you listening today and you don't know who Jesus is? He is the only one who was and is truly significant. We are significant by relationship to him. By coming to know him, we see, first of all, that God places a great significance upon us and that we are worth and have high value in the sight of God. But when we become a follower of Jesus, we become a son and daughter of God, the Most High King. We are transformed and we become new creations. He is significant because he is God's only son who gave himself so that we might live. We are to if we are to embrace him as Lord and Savior of our lives, we are to confess and repent of our sins, which means turn away from them. Admit they were wrong, but turn away from them. And then we place our faith and trust in who God is. And that is who he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, because only he can save us from our sins. Our sins require death, hell, shame, suffering. But Jesus came and was tempted in the same way we are, yet was not without sin. He lived the perfect life that we could not. He died a criminal's death that was to be ours or was ours, and there was no sin in him. He became sin for us so that in him, by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. And he rose from the dead on the third day. He gave his life for us so that we might not die, but have everlasting life in the presence of our Savior and God. Do you know him? Not just know about him. Do you know him? Jesus lived to give himself, and now he offers that life to you, this resurrection life that is not, no longer bound by death. He offers to you by faith. Will you take it? The only way that you can be forgiven of your sins is to embrace him and believe what he did on the cross for you. Don't wait. Do it today. The Bible speaks in a present tense. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Let this day be your salvation day. Don't wait. Do it today. And once you do, please let us know. We would love to hear from you and how God is using this podcast that we've created and he's led us to do. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see your world saturated with the things of God. Let us know how this, this episode has encouraged you. Please throw us a like, rate us, and share this with other people. Feel free to join our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at Apollos Watered. Be listening also over the next few weeks because we have some big announcements that we want to share with you. This is Travis Michael Fleming of Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. 